Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the second chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, where we are going to be looking together at verses 25 through 29. That's Romans 2, again picking up with verse 25, reading through the end of the chapter, which is verse 29. And you can find that passage on page 1105 in your pew Bibles. This morning, here at the end of this second chapter in this very Christ-exalting, wonderful letter of the Apostle Paul, he is giving to the church of Jesus Christ a very detailed exposition of the true glory of the gospel. Though this is the end of the chapter break here with chapter 2, really we are only partially way through his first major point that he must convey to this church that is gathered together here in Rome. The point is this. Mankind, that is all of mankind, is sinful. And they need nothing more in life then they need the gospel that Paul himself is so anxious to bring to them. At this point in the letter, he has already spent quite a bit of his time here pointing out the fact that the Gentiles, the nations around them, are indeed sinners. That they need the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was easy enough to make that point to his audience. The behavior of the nations living in and around the Jewish people at that time was anything but chaste, and it was certainly a very far cry from anything like holy. They had repressed the truth of who God is, and in so doing they had refused to acknowledge Him as Creator, and thus as sovereign over all of life. Their lives manifested their unbelief in very concrete ways. And so they obviously needed saved from themselves. They needed saved from their manifest wickedness, which was not at all veiled and not hidden. And they needed the gospel. The second point he makes is a little bit more difficult. Because then he has turned his attention upon the Jewish people themselves, that is, the religious ones, the supposed God-fearers. And he's told them that they too desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ. They too, just like the Gentiles, are sinners, standing in the need of the grace of God offered through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it's obvious that Paul takes a little more time in making this point. It would have been a shocking charge to those who were hearing it for perhaps the first time. And Paul knows that it's going to be a tough pill to swallow. He himself had to wrestle with these very truths which undoubtedly rocked his own foundation. Upon which he had built any assurance of who he was in the eyes of Almighty God. And as I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago, I think just the meticulous detail in the length that Paul labors here to explain this charge against his Jewish brothers and sisters gives to us just a glimpse of the deep and abiding love that Paul had for the Jewish people. He'll go into that a little bit later on in this letter. 
But rather than simply delivering a much needed rebuke, rather than simply telling them that they were just flat wrong, that they had misapplied the truth, that the foundation upon which they had built their eternal hopes was sinking sand, all of which was true. Paul takes the time to show them from the very things that they were supposedly trusting in exactly how they had misapplied the truth of God's revelation to them. He knows that their immorality is much more veiled than that of the Gentiles. And he must begin to chip away at the well-crafted masks that they had made to cover their sin. And we have seen here that he anticipates just about every reaction that will arise within them against such a charge as this. And he moves from point to point in order to systematically throw down any and all arguments before they're ever even made. And his charge against them is grievous. The charge is a charge we've been talking about for some time. Now the charge is blatant hypocrisy. We've spent a great deal of time considering hypocrisy over the last several months in both Mark's gospel account as well as here in the second chapter of Romans. Hypocrisy. Play acting. They are pretending to be something that they are not. In this case, righteous and thus in favor with Almighty God. And it is a charge that carries with it a very weighty effect. The effect of their hypocrisy was that they were doing the very opposite of what it was that they believed or at least proclaimed that they were doing. They thought themselves to be instruments of light to the world. Pointing the nations to the glory of the God who is. Pointing out the need for every knee to bow before his majestic name. And Paul is holding up before them a very clear illustration of what they truly are, showing them the folly of their self-deception. They were self-deceived people. And the proof of that deception was manifested in their response to the truth. Rather than being humbled by God's revelation, they had turned it into another occasion for pride. Rather than showing compassion towards their fellow sinners, they were condescendingly casting judgment upon everyone except themselves. They were proving to be far more interested in the approval of men, the respect of men, having a name, than they were of actually being reconciled to a holy God. And so Paul begins to open up for them the necessity of an inward religion. To live in the husk of religion, a merely outward manifestation of God's revelation to them, was to be content with the husk and never nourished by the kernel beneath it. It was to be content in the shadows over the substance to those shadows. To love, even to diligently employ the signs and the symbols before the eyes of men rather than seeing that the symbols pointed to a much greater reality. A reality that only brought about outward change as a direct result of an inward reality. 
A change not just of behavior, but a change of heart. And perhaps there was no greater place to, show, to go in order to show this than to the place that Paul goes to last. His final argument here is against resting in their circumcision. The mark of God's covenant people. Resting in the external, physical mark rather than in the inward reality that it was to point them towards. The circumcision of the heart. And it's with all that in, in mind, beloved, that it's all of that that's going to be before us this morning. So let's look now to the Word of God. I'd like you to follow along as I read from God's holy, inerrant, and infallible Word this morning. Again, Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 29. Hear now the Word of our Lord. For circumcision is indeed profitable. If you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful to have the opportunity this morning to come before your word. We ask that you would clear our hearts and our minds of the many things in this life that distract us, and that we would give our undivided attention to the truth of your word, and that hearing that truth through the power of your spirit, that we might be transformed by that word for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned to you from the outset this morning, essentially what Paul is doing here is kicking out from under these Jewish brothers and sisters of his every single prop which they might use in order to uphold their assurance in things external. He's already knocked out their props of the possession of the law, national election, and even in one sense, calling. And now he begins to sort of hack away at the final leg or the final prop holding up their false assurance. And in doing so, he addresses the symbol or that great sign of the covenant promises made to Abraham and reiterated to the other patriarchs in scripture. And of course, we're talking about circumcision. And again, it's as if Paul can hear their arguments before they have even really given them voice. You can almost hear the response, Okay, Paul, you've made some pretty good arguments here. But you must remember circumcision. That's not on the table. I mean, certainly, Paul, you of all people would never negate that. 
I mean, as you know, we bear the mark of belonging to Almighty God on our bodies. We have the mark. That mark distinguishes us from all of the other nations. The mark that Almighty God gave to our father Abraham to seal the promise. And to assure us of the validity of the relationship that he has with us as his chosen people. We bear the mark. And so Paul must continue his campaign of revealing to them the more shocking truth. And he makes, he makes what had to be his most scandalous statement yet to the Jewish ear. And he does so primarily through unpacking this overarching point that they must consider, which is basically this. That the covenant signs themselves ultimately accomplish nothing apart from covenant realities. Let me say that again. Covenant signs themselves ultimately accomplish nothing apart from covenant realities. And he begins to unpack that by making a very important point. And it is that the signs certainly did signify the covenant realities. That is, all the covenant realities. And by considering all the covenant realities, we can begin to see one huge error that the Jewish people had made in their application of the truth. And that is, first and foremost, that the covenant sign and having that sign, being in possession of that sign, made them the recipients solely of the blessings of the covenant. But there was more to it. In fact, it really was only half the picture. Certainly, God had said there were blessings for those who kept the promises of the covenant before them. Deuteronomy chapter 28, we see some of those blessings. There, Moses states, beginning in verse 1, Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to carefully observe all His commandments which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Then for the next 13 verses... He describes to them the blessings of covenant obedience within the covenant family of God. That is, those who have borne the mark of belonging to the covenant and who have kept the terms of the covenant. However, then in verse 15 he says this, But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all His commandments, and his statutes, which I command you today, that all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then beginning with verse 16, running all the way through verse 68, we have listed out for us the horrific consequences of covenant breaking. And beloved, time will simply not allow for us to read them all this morning. But I want to tell you, if you have not read them, you should. It is graphic And it is a terrifying look at the consequences of sin. And so why bring all of this up here this morning? Well, because Paul is making the point here 
that there is both a positive and a negative side of bearing the mark of the covenant. And that these particular Jews were using only the positive side to prop up their wrong-headed false assurance. They were applying a half-truth. They were looking at only half of the picture. They were focused on the blessings of covenant obedience while ignoring that the covenant also laid out curses for covenant disobedience. And in that list of curses, we see a prophetic look at exactly what would befall Israel, what they would endure. They would break the covenant. And these Jewish men and women in Rome, Paul has already made clear, were breaking the covenant. Their outward sign was serving to condemn them as covenant breakers, not uphold them as covenant keepers. They had ignored the revelation of Almighty God in Jesus Christ. He was the fulfillment of every covenant promise. He and he alone kept the law perfectly. He is the promised offspring of Abraham. And only those who were in him were the true children of Abraham. Without Jesus, you are not true Israel. It's scandalous. It is him and him alone that the sign pointed towards and he was the only way to an effect to affect an outward change that, were, that was but the manifestation of a greater reality, an inward change. That is the heart of the covenant. The sign of the covenant served to point to a greater reality, and that greater reality was Jesus Christ, revealed through the Holy Spirit, grasped by God-given faith alone. Faith that looked past the mere physical, to the spiritual reality that drove it. The circumcision that they truly needed all along was one of the heart. And it's not a new concept. Moses stated this to all of Israel in in chapter 10 of Deuteronomy. He says there, beginning in verse 12, And now Israel, what does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to love Him, To serve the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes, which I command you today for good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and He chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your hearts and be stiff-necked no longer. Paul is saying, look, you find rest in, you are assured in the law, but you do not keep the law. Therefore, your assurance is based upon a false premise. The moral law which you break is not the way of salvation. It's an expression of life having received the grace of God through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And you have it backwards if you think that God is saying, keep the law and then I will save you. 
He did not say to the Israelites, keep my statutes, and then if you keep them, I will deliver you from the bondage of Egypt. He said, I am the Lord your God who has delivered you from the bondage of Egypt. I am your God. You are my people. Therefore, keep the law. You don't keep it. And you, you do not get the thrust of the ceremonial law either. You say, I'm okay. I do not need the, the gospel. After all, I'm circumcised. I bear the mark of my position. But the ceremonial law served to confirm the reality of the moral law. And you, by making it merely an outward thing, a sign divorced from its very substance, you have failed to grasp even that. You have failed to see the purpose of the law, the significance of the sign, and all of it condemns you. You have no security in any of these things. What you need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need his perfect righteousness in the law accounted as your own in order to avoid the curses that you have earned in your sin. You need him as the fulfillment of all of the covenant promises to ever enjoy the blessings of the covenant. You need more than flesh that is circumcised. You need a heart that has been circumcised by Almighty God. You only need the outward that is but a true reflection of an inward reality, an inward change. Circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And they had forgotten that. They had uncircumcised hearts and uncircumcised ears. They had missed What was to come in the new covenant? Jeremiah had proclaimed as much in the promise of the new covenant beginning in chapter 31 of that book. He says this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it upon their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Beloved, what God is after, what God will get from all of his people is their hearts. And if he does not, they are not his people. Their hope is vain and their assurance is false. Paul says that your circumcision is really just uncircumcision because it's without the heart. It's without the mind. 
And your behavior proves it. Your false sense of security and what was never meant to be your security proves it. And now, it is as if you never received the law, never received the promises, were never called, or never even heard of the covenant. Because you have rejected what is the very heart of the covenant. You have rejected the gospel. Therefore, any outward, external change is superficial. It is the husk of religion with none of its substance. If you really understood the covenant, your heart would be inclined towards Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. And so what you have, what you are basing your assurance upon, will not save you. It's not enough. And beloved, I hope you see the parallels here. It's not too big of a leap. We believe that baptism is the sign of the new covenant. We've been talking about that the last few weeks. And like circumcision, it points to a greater reality standing behind the sign itself. We have to get this. The Jewish people did did receive benefits from belonging to the covenant people of God and bearing the sign of the covenant people of God. They were raised within the covenant community of Israel. They were most certainly in possession of the revelation of God in the law. And so they had the benefit of being those who knew and who heard the law on a regular basis. They were taught the fear of the Lord. They were able to participate in the worship, the corporate worship of Almighty God. They had fellowship with the people of God. They were not alone in this difficult sojourn of life. They had the history of the redemption of their people. They had the promise of the Messiah who would come and be himself the sacrifice to end all other sacrifices. The promise of a king who would sit upon the throne of David and make his enemies his footstool. The promise that the seed of the woman would ultimately prevail and crush the head of the serpent. Paul's going to go into some of those benefits in chapter 3. But being near the benefits, being marked out as a recipient of the benefits, hearing the law, hearing the promises, knowing them, wasn't enough. They must see the substance of the shadows in Jesus Christ. They must cling to the substance of all of the promises of Almighty God in Jesus Christ, by faith. They must have their eyes and their ears open to the truth of God's word and be transformed by that truth from the inside out and not the other way around. And beloved, we too, who have lived in covenant community, have such blessings as these. We mark our children with the sign of the new covenant, with baptism. Our faith is nourished and strengthened through the observance of the Lord's Supper. But these are not enough to save us. In the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 66, we confess what we believe about these sacraments and their worth. After asking the question, what are the sacraments? This is how the Catechism answers. The sacraments are visible holy signs and seals appointed by God for this end. 
that by their use he may the more fully declare and seal unto us the promise of the gospel. Namely, that of free grace he grants and seals to us the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life for the sake of the one sacrifice of Christ accomplished upon the cross. In other words, they exist to more fully display before us the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They point us away from self and towards Jesus Christ alone, towards his redemptive work for us, towards his suffering of our penalty for us in our place. They proclaim in visible form the amazing nature of our salvation. That is their function. They do not in and of themselves save anyone. But they point us to the only way of salvation. Trusting in Jesus Christ alone by faith alone. He is the substance that the signs are pointing us towards. Just like the sign out there on Route 24 points you towards Napoleon on State Route 108. The sign is not Napoleon but it does point out the way. If you stop at the sign and you think the sign is Napoleon, you're going to be disappointed with what you find. You might wonder how Campbell Soup runs and manufactures soup for the entire entire world from such a place as that sign. You get the point, right? It's a sign. It points out the way. And Paul is telling these Jewish people that circumcision points them to the substance of the covenant that God cut with Abraham and all of his progeny. He alone swore to uphold it. He cut them from the mass of the nations. He passed through the cut pieces of the sacrifice. He swore to bring the reality of the promise through his Messiah by his own name. He put his own faithfulness on the line. And as God, he cannot and he will not fail. That's the greatest assurance, beloved, that we could ever have. If he does, he's less than God and not worthy of our praise. We need the righteousness he alone provides in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And any righteousness that we strum up on our own will never do, no matter how good it looks. We need to understand Paul is doing some serious gardening here. He's plucking out the weeds of false assurance by the roots in the hopes that they will not grow back. He's seeking to pull out, roots and all, every weed that says there is some other way to reconciliation with the Father. To the blessings of the covenant other than Jesus Christ and his wonderful gospel. And he's not just doing it here for these first century Jewish people. He's speaking to you and I as well. And so, beloved, I'm asking you, what are you trusting in this morning? What is the source of your assurance that you are under the blessings of God as found in his covenant promises? 
baptism, it will never save you. It will allow for one to grow up in the blessings of a covenant community. A community where you will be encouraged regularly through the ordinary means of grace prescribed in God's holy word. The preaching of the word, the proper administration of the sacraments, all of it in the rich soil of Christian fellowship and prayer. But without the inward witness of the Holy Spirit, without a heart that has glimpsed both the depths of your own sin and the glorious grace of Almighty God in the gospel, they will not be enough. Are you resting in your confession? That you have publicly named Jesus Christ as your Savior? Without a heart gladdened by the gospel and manifested in good works? Which according to the catechism, the good works are those only which flow from faith. Faith in Christ. Your confession then is all husk and no kernel. Paul's point here warns us that not all who appear to be Israel truly are. And of course, not all who proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ really are trusting him in his work by faith. That hearty trust that every word of God's promise is true. It has culminated in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Those who are have been outwardly transformed through the inward reality of that knowledge. The righteousness you need is that which comes from faith, which unites us in Christ, in His righteousness. And the signs serve to reflect that glorious reality. All other things will only be as genuine as the source from which they flow. You say, well, what does that mean? So I'll say it. Service in the church being here, reading the word, partaking of the sacraments, naming yourself publicly as a Christian, all those things can only be good in so long as they are the byproduct of faith in Jesus Christ alone. But apart from the inward witness of the Holy Spirit to the truth of those things as your foundation, they too are sinking sand. Beloved, you must trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ for you by faith. You must see His sacrifice, His redemption of you, His purchase of you, out of your bondage, your bondage to sin and into the glorious light of Jesus Christ for eternity. And praise God for them. But never... Never look to the husk of religion, ignoring the substance within it, and think that you will receive mercy and grace from the hand of the very God that your sin has separated you from. The righteousness of this covenant is inward because it must be. You could never get there without it. God must renew you by His Spirit after the image of Jesus Christ so that He may bring glory to Himself even through cracked pots, broken vessels like you and like me. And that is where we find genuine assurance. 
You understand, this is what separates the hypocrites from the followers of Jesus Christ. His working in us and through us for His glory. Anything else is much less than what is actually needed and much less glorifying to the God of all creation, the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. What do you trust in this morning, beloved? Praise God if you can answer the Lord Jesus Christ. The substance of all of the shadows, the fulfillment of the promise, the significance standing behind every single sign. And if you cannot, then I need to ask you this morning, what prop could you possibly have left to justify anything less than Jesus? Will you repent and let your burdens go this morning? Just as Paul says to these Jews, the real Jewish people, true Israel, are those who have embraced this promise in Jesus Christ. And all of the others are religious pretenders, living under the mask of false humility, existing with a false sense of security because they have been content in their own self-deception. That's the truth. And so as we spend all this time considering hypocrisy, beloved, I have to ask you, which one are you? What is it that you cling to as the heart of your faith in Jesus Christ? That answer will go a long way toward telling you what you need to do this morning. Let's pray.